0: Happy holidays, everyone. It's Marshall from Tumble. We're on winter break right now, and we'll return with all new episodes soon in February. But in the meantime, we have a special episode for you from our sciencey friends in England, Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you're traveling for the holidays, this is just like packing your bag full of science with a delightful British accent. Now, let's let Dan take it away.
1: Hello, my name's Dan. I host the Fun Kids Science Weekly podcast. In it, every week, we learn about the most amazing things in the universe. So if you love your science and learning the secrets of what really happens in our galaxy and beyond, I'd love you to get involved. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from, and you can have a listen at funkidslive.com. Now, what you're about to hear is our best of 2019 episode, where we catch up on all the amazing guests and the awesome discoveries that we've made in the last year. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, on the 20th of July, the world will be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the first humans to set foot on the moon. Uh, Christopher Riley is a scientist who knows all about the journey, loads about the moon. He's written loads about it, including the brand new book, Where We Once Stood. And he's on the show. Hey, Chris. Hey, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I was thinking, why don't we start at the start? So, when did humans first start realising that there's this lump of rock in the sky maybe we can get quite close to it Oh, good
0: question Well, I suppose the thing about um, us as human beings looking up at the night sky was that it's always been there, I mean from the beginnings of our first inklings of who we were. We were looking up at the sky. We were making patterns out of the stars and telling each other stories about the kind of creatures that lived there. And of course, here was... The biggest thing in the sky that we could see, you know, the equivalent of the sun at night. There it was rising and setting, changing every day, moving across the night sky pretty damn fast, actually. You know, you can see you can watch the moon move today. If you sit and watch it for a few minutes, you will see it move either past a chimney pot or down below a roof or something. It goes at quite a pace. That's for two reasons. Firstly, because the Earth is spinning once every 24 hours. So all of the stars pass pass us every night but also remember the moon's going round the earth as well at thousands of miles an hour in itself. So those combined movements and motions mean that it hurtles around the night sky, right? So it was always there attracting our attention. Now, the first time we were really aware that it was a place, a place we could go and visit was actually when the very first people turned what at the time was called a spyglass. It was a couple of lenses in a tube that you could use to magnify ships on the horizon. But you could also, some people thought, turn it on the night sky, Turn it on the sky and look at the stuff that was up there. And famously, Galileo was one of the first people to point it at the night sky, the Italian mathematician and astronomer. But there was a British guy that did similar work actually a few months before Galileo as well. They both mapped the moon. They were the first to draw what it looked like through their telescopes, as they became called. And what they found amazingly was that there were landscapes there, there were mountains, there were craters, there were plains. This was another world like the one they were standing on, like the one we all live on, the Earth. And suddenly there was this idea, my God, if this is another world on our doorstep, they weren't sure how far away it was, right? But it's near enough to look at through a telescope. Maybe, just maybe, we could visit it. And within a few decades of those observations, human beings were writing science fiction stories about a journey to the moon. So this is over 400 years ago. This was already happening. Now it takes another few centuries before we work out the mechanics and the mathematics of what it would take to build a rocket, to launch a heavy enough craft that would carry humans with all the stuff we need to keep us alive off the Earth. That's a lot of complicated maths to do that. That was a Russian called Konstantin Tsilkovsky who came up with those mathematical formula. It's a great piece of maths that proves that you need a very big rocket to send very heavy things off the
1: Earth. And that was the birth of this idea that we might one day go to the moon. Well, let's talk about that very big rocket then, Chris. Let me take you back, what, 50 years ago, 1969. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin... And the other one, Mike Collins, (laughs) Mike Collins, no, what everyone does, and I'm so sorry, Uh, Mike, uh, they're all sat there uh, and and they're ready to blast off to get into space. What's happening in this rocket that's going to take them there? Can you just slightly take us through the science of everything that propels these people from Earth onto space, into space? Yes, of
0: course. So the thing that's amazing about a rocket, unlike any other form of transport that we know of, that we use regularly, buses, planes, trains, cars, bicycles, rockets uniquely are something called a mass engine. Now, what that means is essentially it's throwing something out the back that pushes it forwards. And Isaac Newton first realised that this was the case. If you are sitting even in a wheelie chair, a chair with wheels you might have at home, take something really heavy, try not to damage anything if you're doing this, and hold it in your hands. And if you throw it in one direction it will move you if you've got good wheels and you're on a smooth surface you will move a little
1: bit in the other direction well let's very quickly unpack that because I think that's the most amazing thing is you've got this rocket it's it's down on earth then with a load of thrust propulsion fire it manages to push it push itself up what is it pushing against? Mm, good questions
0: so the thing about the rocket is it's pushing against gravity so gravity is the thing that's holding us right now onto the, onto the earth if you're standing listening to this it's holding your feet on the ground if you're sitting, it's holding your bum into the chair. It's holding us all down, right? It's what makes life on Earth really practical. You try switching off gravity, and believe me, I've experienced this. I've been weightless for about half an hour over the course of my career, flying various crazy flights in aeroplanes and, airplanes and f- free floating in the cabin. Makes life very tricky. So you, you, gravity is our friend, right? You know, you want to you want to live on a planet with plenty of gravity, and, and the Earth is that one for us. Now, the thing that the rocket then needs to do to counter that gravity is to travel very, very powerfully in the other direction against the force of gravity, away from the centre of the Earth. So going back to this mass engine thing, essentially what Konstantin Tsiolkovsky realised, the, the, that Russian mathematician I mentioned earlier who came up with these rocket equations, was that in fact if you take um, a mass of fuel, propellant if you like, and you heat it up. So it's very excited. It's bouncing around. All the atoms and molecules inside it are bouncing around very fast. They've got velocity and energy themselves. Then you channel all of that propulsive force of all of that mass that's hot now out the back of your rocket. The thing that matters about it is how much mass you've got coming out, how how much it weighs here on Earth, and how fast it's going. And when you kind of get all of those numbers working together in your favour, you can push a pretty big mass in the other direction off the planet. And here's the trick. To go into orbit, you need to do two things. You need to get a certain height above the ground But more importantly than that, you need to be travelling at a particular speed horizontally in relation to that ground so that you can hurtle faster than gravity is pulling you down. So in the end, you essentially you're falling all the time if you're in Earth orbit, but you're falling at the same rate as the Earth is curved. And that's why you end up going around it. So the rocket's job in those first seven minutes or so because that's all it takes to get into orbit into space and earth orbit is to go high and to go fast using that mass engine we just talked about
1: uh, now when, when they're up when they've broken through um, our atmosphere and they're floating around in space you said earlier the, the moon is traveling at thousands of miles an hour all around us then what blows my mind is uh, how they've got the computers on board that, or maybe it's just a simple joystick that they're using to steer themselves into an accurate location. How does that work? Yeah, so navigation is a nightmare when you
0: leave Earth. Remember that if you want to get from A to B on Earth, I mean, these days we use our phone. Our phone uses GPS satellites. In the old days, in the 60s and 70s, when they were going to the moon, of course, it's pre the GPS era. But most of the navigation was done by compasses, you know, and had been for centuries, magnetic compasses. But if you leave the Earth, you are leaving that magnetic. Magnetic field behind you, compasses are useless. No point taking a compass. The moon has no magnetic field that's of any use as well. And of course, the space in between has no magnetic field. So, how do you work out where you're going? Now, you made a really good point, remembering that the moon's going very fast, which is that you know how many days it's going to take you to travel the 400,000 kilometers to get to the moon's distance from Earth, the moon's orbit. But Here's the thing, say that say you do those calculations, it's gonna take about three days. You want to head for a point in space that the moon is going to be at in three days' time. So you need to know very, very accurately to to, to the to the order of a few tens of meters where the moon is going to be three days later. So now the beautiful thing about all of this is of course we, we had in the sixties and still have today, with increasing accuracy, a picture of exactly how fast the moon is traveling and the the trajectory it's on. And we can make beautifully accurate predictions about where the moon will be in 25 years and two days and an hour's time. You know, so in three days time from leaving Earth, they knew exactly where the moon was going to be. So they could point the spacecraft at that point in the sky and head for there. Now, here's the thing. Of course, when you head off there, your machine isn't perfect and it might drift a little bit or might drift off course a bit. So you needed to do two things on the way to the moon the first thing was to constantly monitor your position now remember no compass can't use that we're above the ground for gps there wasn't any gps in those days what else could you use to work out your position relative to the earth and the moon and the spacecraft you know the trick is looking at the stars, just like we did when we started this conversation, making patterns in the night sky. The stars, to all intents and purposes, are fixed in their positions, certainly for the timescales we're talking about for a journey to the moon. So if you can point to key bright stars that you know are locked in those positions, they're like beacons. And you can measure the angle between that star and that star and that star and you, and you do that regularly regularly. You can pinpoint your position. You can work out whether you're off course or on course. And then the genius of all of this, because remember in the 1960s, computers were enormous, size of rooms, size of buildings. And they had to try and shrink a computer down to something that would fit in a couple of shoeboxes that they could store on the spacecraft. So you could type in those star positions and work out whether you needed to burn your engines slightly more, or slightly less to get you back on track, to get to that point where the moon was going to be in three days' time. And that
1: was how they did it. Uh, th- I often think they don't get the credit that they deserve for simply getting back. I mean getting there is half the job. Then they need to get back is the return leg uh, back to the ocean in the earth. Is that as easy as it is getting up there?
0: Oh, you you make a good point. None of this is easy, right? There are zillions of things that can go wrong on the way there and zillions of things that can go wrong on the way back and they all have to line up within a tiny margin of error, uh, otherwise it, you you ain't coming home. So, coming back's interesting because actually when you've got to the moon, you need to slow down to be captured by the moon's gravity. So there's a beautiful point about three days out from the Earth where you go from a point where the Earth's still pulling you back. It's like an uphill struggle leaving Earth. So you start off very, very fast, like on a bicycle, freewheeling uphill. You will very soon run out of speed. And you get to a point when you're heading for the moon where you just get to the top of the hill where then the moon starts to pull you the other way and suddenly you're falling towards the moon. Now, if you don't burn your engine and slow down, you will fall past the moon and zoom off somewhere else. We don't want to think about that. <laughs> so you have to slow down to get captured into the moon's orbit. And then you make your landing, do all that stuff we'll talk about later. Coming back, you have to escape from the moon's gravity and then the Earth captures you and you start to fall back to the Earth. But then now you're falling for three and a half days or more on the way back. And that means you fall faster and faster and faster as you're accelerating nearer and nearer to the Earth. By the time those three astronauts hit the top of the atmosphere as they come back to Earth, they're travelling at 25,000 miles an hour. That spacecraft has to survive immense heats of friction as it hits the top of the atmosphere and the air is compressed in front of it. So much so that the temperature sometimes rises to that of the surface of the sun. They have to then make sure they can swerve and steer their spacecraft in these manoeuvres that they need to pretty much pinpoint their landing or splash down, as you point out, into the Pacific Ocean within a few miles of the rescue ship. There's a lot to go wrong there.
1: Now, the new book is Where Once We Stood. How does that teach us all about this journey and about the moon?
0: Well, Where Once We Stood is an attempt, and it's a wonderful collaboration with Martin Impey, this great um, artist and illustrator who I've known for more than a decade now. And we sat down a couple of years ago and we said, you know what, wouldn't it be great to do a book together? Um, and we um, he was already painting images of... These humans, these lucky 12 human beings, these 12 astronauts from the Apollo era that got to live and work on the moon for those few years that we were doing that activity. And he was already painting pictures of them. And I'd made a few films about them in my past before them, one called In the Shadow of the Moon, which is this lovely story of all of the astronauts that went to the moon and what they experienced there and what it meant for the rest of us watching. So I knew a lot about them. I'd met many of them. I'd interviewed them. And here was a chance to kind of wrap their story around his paintings. So what it, this book is, is it's an attempt to communicate the joy, the wonder, the sense of awe of stepping out onto another world a world, for the the first crew that we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of, it was the first time a human being had placed a footprint on a place, on a surface that wasn't the Earth. And there was something profound and wonderful about that moment in human history that we wanted to celebrate in this book and try and somehow connect the readers with that sense of what it was like to do that. And do you know the most overwhelming feeling that all the astronauts sensed was this feeling that they were children again? Because here they were, they weighed a fraction and a sixth of what they would weigh on Earth. They felt strong. They felt like superheroes. They could jump higher, run faster, lift bigger weights, throw things further. And there they were stepping out onto this pristine ancient landscape that many of them described as like freshly fallen snow so do you remember the excitement perhaps as a child of stepping out for the first time you open your back door it snowed the night before you wake up and there's that snow no one's trodden in it and you're about to go out and place your first footprints there and that's a bit how they
1: felt amazing um, well the book is out right now chris riley thank you so much for telling us all about it pleasure <laughs> Every week on the Fun Kids Science Weekly, we like to take a look at some of the most deadly and mean things in the universe. They're not always intentionally mean. Sometimes they just have to be quite cruel and evil uh, to survive and keep existing in the world. Uh, Quite often we look at insects, you know, tiny and the most terrifying things I I can actually think of on the planet. Uh, And earlier on this year, we, we had a look at who has the worst sting of all of the insects out there. Let's find out now when you think about it we've learned about quite a few insects on the show who are said to have the most painful sting in the world i'm not sure if anyone really knows the true answer but here's another one to chuck into the pile and it's worth being included on our dangerous dan list simply because of the name check this out let me introduce you to the executioner wasp Now, its scientific name is Palistes carnifex. It's found in Central and Southern America, so that's Mexico right down through Argentina and Chile. Uh, And it's a huge thing, a gigantic wasp. It's yellow and brown. It's quite a light colour. It's got evil green-looking eyes, and it's long with quite big wings, too, to keep it up. Now, because it's so big... Uh, It preys on larger creatures than itself. one of the only insects that really does this efficiently, uh, regularly feeding on caterpillars and other insects that are bigger. Now, it's not an aggressive wasp species, but many locals in Latin America who live in the same place as the executioner wasp say that the sting is the most brutal and the single most painful experience that you can have. People uh, stung uh, report that the pain lasts for a day and a half, It almost immobilises your arm, stops you from using it. It leaves a rotting patch of skin and flesh where the wasp left its mark. So it's mean, it looks evil, it's devastatingly painful, and with a name like the Executioner Wasp, it has to be included in our Dangerous Dan list. We don't always focus on the huge ideas in science like the race to the moon. Uh, Sometimes the stuff that we talk about on the show and the things that we really love is a little bit closer to earth, deep down here, right deep down in the dirt and in the soil, because sometimes we find out how the creatures down there are in trouble and need our help. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, some animal experts are calling on you to help save a species. The People's Trust for Endangered Species, they need your help with stag beetles, Laura Bauer is a conservation officer at PTES and she can tell us how we can help. Hey, Laura. Hello. Now, um, this is going to sound quite a mean question to start. Uh, we, we're told to help save so many species all the time. Yeah. Pandas, bees. Why should, why, why should stag beetles go quite high up the list?
2: Um, well, I think every species is important in its own right, um, but particularly particularly stag beetles, because they occur in our gardens um, and we can actually do something about it. Um, And they're actually performing a little bit of a service for us. So the larvae live underground for several years, feeding on dead wood, and they actually return nutrients back into the soil for us. So they're actually really good for us.
1: Now, again, this is going to sound mean, but stag beetles are a notoriously ugly-looking creature, I want to say. I mean, they they don't look... Like nice Uh, and sweet and cute?
2: I would say magnificent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They have got these fearsome-looking jaws, um, which the males use for um, wrestling and fighting each other um, over females. But um, they're actually harmless to humans, so we shouldn't worry.
1: We know that we need to save the stag beetle, Laura, but how do we know that? What studies, what research... Uh, have PTES done uh, that's let you know that maybe it needs our help?
2: OK, so we know that it's gone extinct in several countries um, across Europe. Um, it's actually doing quite well here in Britain. The uh, People's Trust for Endangered Species has been monitoring where beetles occur for the last 20 years now. And the range, i.e. where they live, is is quite stable over that time. Um, but we don't actually know about the numbers, so we're still quite concerned.
1: Um, we, we said earlier that the stag beetle is quite a menacing-looking beast. What, what kind of creatures feast on the stag beetle? Who are its main predators?
2: Um, so it sort of has different predators. Um, as a larva, it might get dug up by foxes or badgers, because um, it's a nice tasty treat for them. Um, once it emerges as an adult, it starts to fly around. Um, but it's not hugely quick and it can't get away. So it gets eaten by things like magpies and crows. Um, It also gets crushed underfoot sometimes by people and run over on the road. They're actually attracted to the warm tarmac, so it's a bit unfortunate, really, but they can get run over. And then once one gets run over, they can also attract other beetles, which then means more and more get run over.
1: It's a vicious circle. It is. Um, So, you know, aside from and don't do this, but aside from standing next to the road and making sure they're not going into the hot tarmac, how can we actually help the stag beetle? I know over at PTES, um, you've got a a few ideas of what we can do over the summer.
2: Yeah, so really, I mean, predators and things like that are are natural anyway. It's only when a species is in trouble that we really need to worry about predators and things. Um, So what we can do is report stag beetles when we see them. That would be really helpful. Um, But also in your gardens um, and schools, you can um, build log piles. So stag beetles actually need decaying wood that's underneath the ground. So you need to bury some of that wood. We actually use the term um, log pyramid, so it kind of stands up and looks kind of like a building almost. So you dig a hole, bury the logs in upright, and then fill in the holes. So there's still some of the wood uh, above the surface, but there's lots and lots of wood underneath. Um, they also like wood chips as well. So any gardens that have got wood chippings covering them, that's really useful too. Uh,
1: once I've done all this, once I've made them almost like a little den in my back garden, if I see one of them, uh, what should I do? Should I go over and investigate? Should I stand well back? What's the the general idea?
2: Um, well, enjoy enjoy watching it. Um, they're not you know afraid of us, as it were. So you know, get close if you want to see it. Um, But then just leave it alone, really, unless it's in danger. So the main thing, you know, you can do is if it's on a road and and you're able to, or if it's about to be eaten by a magpie or a crow, you can chase the magpie or crow away. Um, Sometimes dogs and cats get interested. So if you could keep your pets inside just on warm evenings, they're only about during um, June and July. So, you know, you're hardly, hardly likely to see one, but you'll be really lucky if you do.
1: Now, I know that right now you're focused on stag beetles, but Laura, what other endangered species are capturing your eye, the, the ones that we could help if we had the time?
2: Yeah, well, another one um, that we're focusing on is hedgehogs because they are widespread across the UK and they are in gardens. Um, and you can do do stuff in your garden to help them as well, make sure you've got wild areas um if you're encouraging insects then that's good for hedgehogs too because that's what they eat um and also to link up your gardens with your neighbors because hedgehogs need a you know quite a, a wide range to roam across to find food so if we think um of the size of our garden um we also need to let it through to the next garden and the next garden so walls and fences are actually barriers to them
1: you said hedgehogs, and and it reminds me of earlier when you said about the stag beetles liking the hot tarmac on a road. Yeah, and it makes you think about the hedgehog in that a lot of creatures that are, have been around, you know, that are wild in nature, they're not we've not made things easy for them because hedgehogs, they stumble onto a road and when they panic, they roll up into a ball and they don't move anywhere.
2: <laughs> yeah, and they can often get run over. Not,
1: not Yeah, road's not a brilliant place for you to stay in a ball, is it? So we need to do as much help as we can. Um, you're doing the, the Great Stag Hunt. If you're listening, if you see a Stag Beetle when you've given them all this help in your back garden, you want to get involved with the Great Stag Hunt, get online, record your sighting. It's PTES.org forward slash gsh great stag hunt Uh, laura thank you so much for coming on the science weekly to tell us
2: more thank you
1: This is our best of 2019 episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you've only just found us, if you're having a little taster, uh, you can subscribe so you get one of these pretty much every week in 2020. Wherever you get your podcasts from, they're from Apple, they're on Google, on Spotify. If you've got the Fun Kids app as well, have a listen on that and you can always find us at funkidslive.com. Now, I remember back in September, we looked at, I think, the most terrifying, dangerous, Dan, that we've ever heard about. Because science can be scary. You know, think of black holes, exploding stars, scuttling spiders. But really, even with all that, is there anything more scary to imagine than your body right now turning to stone? Now it's time for this week's Dangerous Dan, which is all about one of the strangest and rarest diseases through history, which is known as Stone Man Syndrome. Now, its proper name is fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, or FOP. And it's when muscles, tendons, and ligaments turn into bone. Now, as I say, it's one of the rarest diseases that is around the world. Uh, It affects about one in two million people. There are no treatments and cures at the moment just yet. And it's caused by a, a genetic disorder. It's essentially an issue Where the body's repair system, it thinks that parts of itself that aren't made of bone are made of bone. So when it gets damaged, when it gets hurt, it repairs them as if it was bone. So you start to feel muscles, tendons, things that help you move, turn into bone. And then quickly you become rigid like a statue. And it works from the top down. It starts to fuse parts of your shoulder, then your chest into bone, then it works towards your arms and your legs, and it can be dangerously fatal. Because once the muscles around the jaw turn into bone, there's no way of opening it to breathe or even to eat. It turns a person into a stone made of bones. Right, I think we've been down here on Earth too long, so let's head back up to space now. Or actually try and bring space down to us and we'll try to answer the question that we all want to figure out if there is life on other planets and i mean space is pretty much infinite so that has to be an option to consider if there is extraterrestrial life why don't we know about it yet they can probably time travel why haven't we seen aliens yet now back in august uh, we spoke to an author and scientist and tried to answer that question It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, did you see in the news the other day, uh, there was a plan to try and storm Area 51. Um, Not really the best idea, because I think it's like a military base and they'll have armed army um, manning it at all times. But people wanted to see if the rumours were true and there were aliens inside. So it got me thinking... Are there aliens inside? Are there aliens anywhere? And moreover, why haven't we seen any aliens yet? Uh, So fantastic news. We've got in the studio the author Stephen Ricard, who can possibly help us answer because he's written a book. It's called Why Haven't We Seen Aliens? Hey, Stephen. Hi there. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, uh, first and foremost, let's deal with the big question. The name of the book. Answer it for me. Why haven't we seen aliens yet?
3: Well, it's a kind of trick question because I do answer it in the book, or I try and answer it. But actually, the book is an excuse to write about lots of other really interesting ideas and things that hang together under that idea of why we haven't seen aliens.
1: So, So talk me through some of the ideas then that this book does talk us through.
3: Well, at the beginning, I kind of say, well, there's three possible answers to the question. One is that there aren't any aliens, so that's why we haven't seen them, which is perfectly possible. Um, Another answer is that we have seen them and they're already here. So if you kind of see the odd weird person walking around, maybe that's one of those aliens. Although maybe, if we think about it, the aliens are a bit cleverer than that, so the really normal people are the ones that are actually the aliens And the kind of not so normal looking people are just like you and me. And then there's the kind of third answer, which is the proper answer, which is, well, we really need to look at the science and look at the universe that we live in and do our best to try and get an answer to that question.
1: So let's try and expand on the third one. Then it always baffles me when when we hear. People usually on the telly talking about aliens and they always give uh, the, the uh, they always give the theory uh, life as we know it. That's the words that they always use life as we know it. Now, surely if there are aliens out there, it's not going to be life as, as we know it. Talk to me about those words, if you can, Stephen. What is life as we know it when we are searching for aliens?
3: Well, life as we know it, the only life that we know is the life that we know on Earth, which is everything from bacteria to pet dogs and cats to ourselves, you know, the whole range of living things. So it's kind of hard to work out what aliens, if they exist, would actually look like. And one of the things I do look at in the book is what would aliens look like if we did actually meet them? And you can't You can't say well, they're all going to be gray or they're all going to be green, but you can sort of have a stab at some answers because we can look at what's happened to life on Earth, and we can sort of say, "Well, what happened on Earth may be the same kinds of things because the same scientific processes are going on around the universe because we think science is a universal. Thing You know, rules of science or laws of science are pretty universal. So, for example, we have got lots of cars on our planet and they've all got wheels. Most of them have got four wheels. But we haven't really come across any life that I'm aware of on Earth that uses wheels to get around. We use legs or we slither or fins, all kinds of solutions to the business of getting around. But none of them involve wheels. So why is that? Well, I'm guessing that wheels have got axles and the wheely bit has to go around the axley bit and you get friction and stuff gets worn away. And that's OK if you replace your car every five years. But if you've got to live for 70 years with bits rubbing away, it get, kind of gets a bit difficult. And also wheels are not very good for going up steps and, you know, all the rest of it. So one of the things I suggest in the book is that maybe the kinds of ways that aliens would get around would be very similar to the kinds of ways that life gets around on Earth.
1: Without wheels?
3: I'm guessing probably without wheels. And yes, unless they found a solution to that little problem.
1: If we're talking about, as I say, sorry again, life as we know it, what do... What do the fundamental building blocks of life need to exist? If we were to, to find another planet that could uh, facilitate life, what would it need?
3: Gosh, we don't even know the answer to that. We all, we think, and when I say we, I'm talking about the scientific community now. You can but,
1: talk for them on this show, that's okay. Okay,
3: thank you. Uh, I'll do my best. Um, carbon, we think that all life on Earth is carbon-based. carbon based and we suspect that all life on, in the universe is also based on carbon. But there are some scientists who think that silicon, which is another element, would be a very good basis for the chemistry of life being formed from that.
1: What, what do you mean when you talk about that? So why is life all carbon-based at the moment? Is it just that's what we had a lot of during the Big Bang?
3: Uh, It's where we came from. Um, We started with amino acids and the whole process of building life. I mean, that's another thing we don't know, is how life started, where life started. Um, When I was young, we were were all told that, that life had to start... We looked at solar systems. We looked at the idea of planets orbiting a star. And we said, well, there has to be a habitable zone. There has to be this bit... Which is not too far away from the star Where it's going to be quite warm But it's not so near that it's going to be really hot And water is one thing that we need for life So we think So we said any life on one of these solar systems In one of these solar systems Has got to be on a planet Which is not too distant And not too far from the star So people called it the Goldilocks zone (laughs) Because, it, you know, the porridge thing So that's what everybody thought until quite recently, probably in the last 10 years. And we've discovered deep, deep, deep under the sea, uh, in miles under the sea, this life that's being formed and thriving in what we call hydrothermal vents. And it's nothing like the kind of life that, that we know about up here, because oxygen would kill the life down there. But it's thriving and it's having a great time. And then we look at a a moon orbiting Saturn called Enceladus, and there's a couple of moons out there orbiting Saturn and Jupiter, and they're both huge planets, so they've got huge gravity. So these moons, as they orbit the, the planet, they're getting pulled and pulled by gravity, pulled and squashed by it, like a little rubber ball, and they're heating up. And we're suddenly finding there's all these volcanic vents and all this kind of stuff going on, really hot moons thousands and thousands of miles from from the sun and they're you know historically we said well life can't exist there because it's too cold and now we're having to reinvent all our theories because it's hot and i think nasa are now sending something out there to have a look
1: Uh, just stepping away from science slightly to talk about history i'm not sure if you can answer this but I'll, I'll, i'll give it a go how much of the idea of aliens are a fantasy uh, in, in recent times. I mean, if you were to travel back a few hundred years, was anyone worried about extraterrestrial life back then? What a good question. Uh,
3: no, I don't think so. Um, again, <laughs> one of the things I talk about in the book is not just the science, but actually our our human understanding of the universe and how that's changed over time. So back in the times of the ancient Greeks, planet is actually a word that means wanderer in Greek because the planets were these little glowing things that used to move about. But the rest of the, the sky, when, when they looked at it at night, didn't really move. And they just thought it was a, a sheet of of sh- something that was the, the kind of outer circle. And these planets moved about in circles inside that, and it was only really in the early nineteen, I think nineteen twenties, when this guy called Edwin Hubble, who was actually a lawyer and a part-time astronomer, actually discovered that a there was this thing called the universe that was much more than what we thought at the time. But actually, god damn it, he realised it was expanding, and that was absolutely terrifying. It completely
1: changed. And, and after Hubble made that discovery, at what point? in the last uh, 90 years, did we start thinking, you know what, there may be other things out there and maybe they want to say hello?
3: Well, there's been a few people who've been thinking it for quite a long time and they used to be regarded as extremely odd people and were largely ignored. And I think slowly the scientific community gradually moved to the possibility because when we realised that... You know, we're part of the Milky Way galaxy, but we realise there are hundreds and thousands, possibly millions, billions of galaxies. Uh, We're not on our own, and there's a lot of stars. There's a lot of planets orbiting those stars. Um, We've actually found 4,000 of them, I think, in the last five years or so. So a lot of what we thought was possible or a bit weird, we're actually now finding out is actually real. And that really gets you thinking about the possibility of their life being out there.
1: Um, uh, you just mentioned NASA making moves to go and check out these extraterrestrial volcanoes. Are we doing anything else to maybe get in contact with aliens that might be up there?
3: Yes, we are. Uh, there's a guy called Frank Drake who is very old now. And he has been pushing very, very hard for most of his life for us to be looking out there and trying to find Uh, alien life and he was one of the people that was involved in SETI, S-E-T-I, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence Um, and they've been doing a lot of different things and some people in SETI have been quite disappointed that we haven't really received any messages from aliens but when you do the numbers and you look at the time that we've been around and the size of the universe I think it's really not that surprising. But that's the big giveaway because that's kind of the end of the... That's the conclusion I reach in the book.
1: Well, it's because it's all about time, isn't it? It's all about time and the fact that, we're, you know, we've only been here. There's that um, uh, that statistic where if the world, the life of the world or, a 20, or the life of the universe were a whole day, we've been here for pretty much a minute of it or yeah, even less than absolutely. that. Absolutely. Um, you've got the answers to all that and loads more in the brand new book, Haven't We Seen Aliens? It's by Stephen Ricard. Uh, thank you so much, Stephen, for coming in the studio.
3: Pleasure. Glad to be here.
1: The thing that we've really learned about science in the last 12 months is that it's, it's everywhere. It's not just up in space or in the wilds and the jungles in the oceans down here on Earth, but it's also in our own body. And get this, in the future, there's a thought that scientists may be able to drastically change what is actually happening in your body to design what's going on inside you. It's called gene editing. And earlier on in 2019, we spoke to a proper expert about it. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. So I saw a headline on the internet the other day, which absolutely terrified me, right? It says, The most worrying thing about gene editing is that it's really easy. And that kind of lit so many fires in my brain, you know, what really is gene editing? Why is it easy and why should we be worried about it? So to help us figure all this out on the line, we've got biologist Nessa Carey. Hey, Nessa.
4: Hey, Dan. How are
1: you? I'm really well. Thank you so much for joining us. So let's start basically as simple as we can. What is gene editing?
4: Okay, so every organism on the earth, from bananas to bats, from bacteria to humans, We have a kind of script, which is our genes, made from DNA. And what gene editing is, is a new technology that means we can directly change that genetic script. We can change the letters of our DNA alphabet really easily. And we can do it for any species on Earth. So we can start changing the script that underlies all organisms on this planet.
1: Now, I understand that as an idea. I get it as a concept. But in practice... I'm a little confused by it. What does a gene look like? Because to edit it, surely you need to see it on the screen to be able to tamper with it.
4: Well, um, genes are tiny, microscopic. You could never see them even with practically any microscope. Um, But we have ways of being able to tell what our genes are. We have ways of being able to do what we call sequencing them because our genes are made up of these repeating structures that we can think of like letters. So our genes are basically like a giant book within all of our cells. And we have technologies so that we can find the exact bit of an enormous book. Like if you just wanted to change one word in all of the Harry Potter books... Gene editing means that we have ways now that we can find that one word really quickly and we can change it to whatever we like. So it's an amazing technology.
1: And what is the technology? Like, how does it see? How does it look inside the book of my person, if, if that kind of makes sense? What is it like, an, am I sitting in an X-ray? Are you rubbing something on my arm? What's going on?
4: No, so we can get the gene editing into the cells of organisms, because all organisms are made of cells. We can get them in by packaging them up in very harmless little viruses that basically will carry the gene editing materials into our cells. And then there's a component that acts like a search function. It finds the right word by scanning all the DNA. And there's another component that acts like a pair of scissors and can chop the DNA. And those are the basic principles in gene editing.
1: So when you say a component, these are like almost chemicals in our body that's searching things out?
4: That's what we would do. We would put these chemicals into our body, but it's not like, say, taking a painkiller or an antihistamine or something. It's much more precise than that.
1: Now, when when we take... um when we kind of ingest, or however we were we were to take the, ed, the 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 virus, sorry, does it kind of find all the genes, or does it only do a few, and then our body kind of does a lot ourselves?
4: So it will only find the genes that it's basically the same as. It's like if you wanted to change the word uh, Quidditch in all of the Harry Potter, the gene editing reagents, they'd only find the word Quidditch in the harry potter they'd only find the right words to change so in the same way in our genes you just put in a little sequence into the viruses a little stretch of something very like our own dna and it will just look for the bit that it matches it's a bit like finding the right piece in a jigsaw
1: so that's what happens when it's in our body but what about before it gets there how are you editing it Um, Yeah, before we take in the virus, is it on a computer screen? Is it a bit like playing a game? What's happening there?
4: Well, we know what the DNA script is of lots and lots of organisms now. So if you looked at humans, our DNA script is very big. It's three billion letters. So what you do is on a computer, you find the bit that you want to change. And then you chemically manufacture the little piece of almost... DNA that you put into the virus so you chemically make that and you put it into the virus and then when that virus gets into the cells it will just be able to scan along our DNA and find the one bit that matches.
1: You say on a computer is it like a a software that I could download online?
4: Yeah pretty much I mean access to the entire human genome sequence is freely available to anybody who wants it online and actually access to the sequences of hundreds of organisms. It's just available online. So what? you can just find the bit you want. So what do you mean
1: when I look up the human genome sequence online what will I see? What will be staring up at me?
4: You'll see an incredibly long sequence. It will our genetic alphabet only contains four letters. These are called A, C, G and T and what you would see is three million of these. So it's not an easy book to read it's about, oh I don't know 40 50 times the length of all the Harry Potter books put together
1: and it's so those 3 million that the sequence of 3 million is that 3 billion, three billion? is is yep. that just what's in me or is that what's in the whole world
4: That's um, every person in the world has 3 billion letters in their DNA alphabet, but we don't all have exactly the same 3 billion. Most of them are pretty much the same, but a few of them change, and that's why you and I look different, for example.
1: And it's the variation of those that determines how we're different.
4: Yeah, exactly.
1: That's exactly it. So let's talk, very, if we can, about how we can edit genes to do things. Is there a limit in what we can uh what humans can do thanks to g- their genes being edited like could we really become superheroes just by placing a c t and g in different in different variations
4: oh i wish we could i'd love to be a superhero that would be so <laughs> fantastic but no it's not going to be like that most things like how tall you are what you look like how smart you are those are influenced by your dna but they're also influenced by your environment, like did you get good nutrition? And even the bits of it that are controlled by your DNA, it's not that there's just one piece of your DNA that influences things like that. There may be hundreds of different bits of your DNA that influence those really complex things about humans. So we're not going to make super smart, super fast, super big humans by gene editing.
1: What can we do with gene editing then? What's the point of it?
4: Oh, the point is we can do loads of stuff. So with humans, we think we'll be able to use it to cure certain diseases, diseases that we really can't treat at the moment. Um, We can also use it in crops so that we can, for example, create rice, which is more nutritious and which can grow even in soils which have become quite damaged through agriculture. But we can also do really just fun stuff like investigate basic things in biology, like why butterflies have particular colours in their wings and particular patterns. It's being used for all sorts of applications.
1: Why is it an issue then? Why when we talk about gene editing do people get so up in arms and get so frustrated at ethical and moral issues that this presents?
4: There's kind of a range of reasons. Some people don't like the idea that we interfere with the DNA of other organisms. They think it's basically very wrong. Um, But I think you have to remember that humans have done that for thousands of years. That's why we have things like tame dogs and cattle who will um, graze happily in fields and we get lots of meat and milk from them. So some people just object to us interfering with the DNA of other organisms. Some people are worried that it will be unsafe. There isn't that much that suggests that this technology is going to be particularly unsafe. And what people really worry about is if we change the DNA of humans, and then those humans, if they have children, pass on that change, that means we've changed our genetic alphabet forever in those particular humans and all their offspring and all their descendants. So some people get very worried about that.
1: I started um, this chat by reading a quote, the most worrying thing about gene editing is that it's really easy, and that's from you. Why Why is it worrying?
4: The reason it's worrying is Because most technologies that are very powerful are quite complicated and so only a few people or a few organizations can use them and you can usually detect if organizations are using them. Gene editing really isn't like that. You only need a fairly basic laboratory setup and you don't even have to be particularly skillful as a scientist to do it. And the reason that that's worrying is if people start using it for irresponsible reasons So, for example, there's been a scientist in China who has created babies who have been gene edited, and everyone's very concerned about that because they will now pass on that DNA change, and it's really not clear that it was a good thing to do in that particular case. There's also a theoretical risk that people could use this same technology to create things like superbugs that might create new dangerous infections that we can't fight.
1: It sounds exactly like the plot of a movie that is the end of which is that, <laughs> is that the world is destroyed. <laughs> um, uh, well, brilliant. The, the, uh, you've got a book, it's called Hacking the Code of Life. Uh, thank you so much, Nessa Carey, for coming on the Fun Kids Science Weekly to tell us.
4: It's been a pleasure, Dan. Thanks very much.
1: Let's get one last dangerous, Dan, for this week's best of 2019 episode, then, because it turns out that deadly traits run through everything. doesn't matter if it's Up in sky, away in space, down here on Earth. Most things have got something that's a little bit evil, cruel and nasty about them. Even fruit. Have a listen to this and maybe hold your nose. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan where we have a look at the meanest and some of the strangest things that are in the world. And today we've got a very peculiar one. Because it's not deadly as such, but it is probably something that you don't want anywhere near you. You need to meet the durian. It's the world's smelliest fruit. This stinker is covered in a hard shell, uh, which is prickly, it's really spiky, and then they're massive too. Durians can grow up to the size of a football, weighing up to four kilograms, and their stench has been compared to a blend of flowers, rotten onions, sweaty pants, petrol, custard, cheese, eggs, and of course, nothing's ever going to be disgusting without this word, poo. Rancid poo. That's what the durian can smell like. Now, once you break through the tough husk, you'll find some fleshy pulp in there that's ripe to be eaten. And there are some seeds, too. And here, actually, things do get dangerous because the seeds are toxic. They're poisonous to humans. If they're not cooked properly, they're filled with a fatty acid that we can't deal with. And that makes it dangerous. This fruit, it divides a lot of people as well. You see, in Southeast Asia, some call the durian the king of the fruits. They think it's delicious and creamy and sweet and rich. Others, others detest it. The durian is so stinking as well that it's banned from many public spaces in Thailand and in Singapore, it's even illegal to carry them on public transport. And if anything's illegal, it surely earns a place on our dangerous Dan list. And that is it for this week's best of 2019 episode of our Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you've enjoyed it, if you've never heard us before, uh, get involved throughout 2020. You can subscribe to the show so they automatically download to your phone, tablet, whatever it is, every single week. You don't even have to lift your thumb. You can do that through Apple Podcasts. It's on Google. It's on Spotify. You can also download our free Fun Kids app so you can do that as well. Uh, Every week as well, we answer some of your science questions. If there's something niggling away in your brain that you really want figured out, but you just can't work out how to uh, do the research, let me do it for you. If you want your question asked, you need to leave it as a review for the Fun Kids Science Weekly over on Apple Podcasts. You can find us there. We're all over the place, wherever you get your shows from. And we're also on FunKidsLive.com. Now, Fun Kids, we're a children's radio station from the UK. You can hear us all over the country on that Fun Kids app and on our website again. And I will see you next year. Bye.